Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Well, before we move into our, our text for this morning, let us pray. Uh, Father, we give you thanks for your word, for Galatians 1, what Wayne just read for us. And we pray now that you would make your word a swift word, passing from our ear to our hearts, from our hearts into the words that we will speak this week, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There is so much that we can disagree about. Even for Christians, there's a lot we can disagree about. There's politics. Red or blue, who should you vote for? We disagree. There are things like uh, college athletics. Indiana or Purdue? Purdue been around long enough, you probably know by now, my mom grew up in Bloomington, I'm a huge Indiana Hoosier fan, and so a couple of weeks ago, I came to our mission auction on, on Saturday night, just, you know, hearts with the Lord and missions, and uh, Phil just crushed it, uh, being the auction leader this past week, but Phil, Phil gets up and says there's a rumor floating around that, that for a certain amount of money, I might be willing to be photographed in a Purdue shirt. I was like, where's this blasphemy coming from? (laughs) We disagree, Indiana or Purdue. Genesis 1, those six days, or is it a longer period of time? Is that literal or is that figurative? We we disagree. Cubs or socks? And as I'm learning, this close to Michigan, there's some Tiger fans that try to force their way into that conversation. We disagree. Yeah, there's one. All right. You've been heard. Okay. So we, dis- we disagree, but there are some Christians that they think unless you believe everything down the line, you're not a true Christian. That for some Christian, they are very dogmatic on many of those points. That all true Christians would only vote for Democrats, exclusively root for the Indiana Hoosiers. And Genesis 1 must be six literal days because God wanted to create this earth in as short a time as possible so that we could get to the creation of Wrigley Field and he could watch a game from the bleachers (laughs) rooting for the Cubs. There is so much that we can disagree about. And oftentimes that can lead to theological fights. Some of us, and, and I'm more this end of the spectrum, some of us, we never want to have theological disagreements. And it's just, just go along to get along. Theology doesn't really matter. We shouldn't disagree on anything and just let people have their own beliefs. And neither path is, is a very good one. And what I find interesting about the Apostle Paul is there are moments when he, he's very open-handed about some very important things. And he seems to say, no, it's okay for Christians to disagree on this. But not here. Whatever's going on here, Paul's very clear, you can't, we're not disagreeing about this. This is not open-handed. And he makes that clear in, in two ways. First is that in verse 6, Paul typically, he'll, he'll announce, hey, I, this is Paul writing this letter. 
He'll give a nice greeting, which I, I elaborated last week, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he'll move into, and I, I thank God for you, this church I'm writing to, and here's why I thank God for you. He doesn't do that here. Instead of saying, God, I thank you for these, these churches in Galatia, instead he says, I am astonished. So not I thank my God for you, it's I am shocked at what's going on in your church. That's pretty strong. And then it gets stronger. He says, if someone preaches a gospel different than the gospel I preached to you, let him be accursed. And you read that and you're like, Paul, that's a little intense, my man. Maybe, maybe bring it down a notch. And then he says, uh, lest anyone, uh, or as, as we've said before, so now I say again, if you preach a different gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, this is a, this is a big deal. What's going on in this passage is a big deal. So what's happened? What have they done that Paul says has shocked him? He's astonished. That he's calling down curses on the people who are speaking a false teaching. What has happened? Well, we're told in verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. There should be, a, should be a couple words in there. Uh, to live should be in there. Who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And most English translations have that. Paul says what's happening here is people have turned away from living in the grace of Christ. Which for me raises the question, why would anyone do that? Who's like, you know, what I need a little bit less of in my life is, is grace. But that's what's happened. How do you turn away from a life of grace? Well, let's start there. How do we turn from living in the grace of Jesus? So what's going to be really important through the rest of this series is to understand the theological argument Paul is speaking about. And I'm going to mention it briefly here, but we'll unpack it more in the weeks ahead. But essentially, there were some teachers who had come down from Jerusalem to Galatia And what they were teaching was that in order to be a true Christian, you must keep the Jewish law. So we have the Old Testament. It's full of laws and feasts and expectations for the Jewish people to be in covenant with God. And and the question for early Christians, one of the most important questions is, what do we do with all of that scripture? And it seems wrong just to say you don't have to keep any of that law anymore. And so some... Christian teachers came down from Jerusalem and said, no, if you're, if you're a true Christian, you will keep the Jewish law. You must be circumcised. You must obey the law of the Old Testament. That to be in right relationship with God, you must keep these rules. And what's important is Paul doesn't describe this as an alternative way of understanding the gospel. He, understand, he makes clear this is a rejection of the gospel itself. That when he says... You're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There is not another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that word distort means to turn inside out. Basically means to nullify it. That by changing what what Paul had preached, Paul is saying you are undoing the gospel itself. It's not a gospel. It's something different. That... To say you must keep the Jewish law to be a Christian is a rejection of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Now, it might be a little bit difficult for us because my 
guess is no one in your life has ever tried to convince you that to be saved, you must keep the Jewish law. So how do we turn from living in grace? Well, let me ask you this. What, what gives you the confidence that you can talk to God? I mean, we just sang some songs to God. We just prayed to God. What, what gives you the confidence that you could just walk into the presence of God and, and start speaking? Because none of us should have any confidence that if we were to try to call up our president, Joe Biden, later today, he's not going to take your call. Not even Governor Holcomb, if you gave him a call later today, you should have no confidence he's interested in your call. Even the mayor of Valpo, most likely some of you might know him, but it's very unlikely he's going to take your call on a Sunday. And yet, on a Sunday, how many of you had confidence God heard you? He listened. So what gave you that confidence? There's only two ways you can have confidence that you can speak to God. One way is your performance. You're a good person. You're a moral person. You're certainly better than the bad people who are ruining our culture. And therefore, because you're a good person who does what God asks you to do, you can come into his presence and sing and pray. That's what Paul says is not a gospel. The other way you can have confidence you can come into the presence of God is his grace. He does not owe you anything. And yet, he welcomes you into his presence. That for Paul, saying what gives you confidence before God is your performance is a rejection of the gospel. So let's go back to our friend Martin Luther. I, I talked about him last week. I said that was the guy who, for much of his life, thought God was trying to kill him by lightning. Well, later in, in Luther's life, he, he wrestled with what gives me confidence before God? Is it my spiritual performance? Is it my grace? And one of the turning points in his life was he, uh, he was told by the Pope of the day, there was a church in Rome, St. John of Laterans, and there was a staircase there that the Christians thought had come from Pilate's, uh, Pilate's uh, palace in Jerusalem, that maybe Jesus walked these stairs as he was being judged by Pilate, so they moved the staircase to Rome, and the Pope announced, if you climb the staircase, you will have special grace from God. So a lot of people, they would get on their knees and go up the staircase on their knees, because if you walk with your feet, that's, that's kind of like halfway doing it. You go on your knees, and your knees get bloody up the staircase. You're showing God, look at, look at all I'm doing for you. So Luther starts up the staircase. He gets halfway up the staircase on his knees, and he just... He begins to reject the entire notion that his performance, whether or not he gets up this staircase or not, it's completely irrelevant. And a phrase comes into his mind. It's from the Old Testament, but it's quoted in Galatians 3.11, and we're going to talk a lot about it. But a phrase comes into his mind, Galatians 3.11, the righteous shall live by faith. And what he, what he meant by that was, I can have confidence into the presence of God, not because I'm going to get up this staircase, but by faith that Christ's work is finished for me. I therefore have nothing left to do, 
and I can come into his presence because my confidence is solely in the work of Christ. And that takes faith to believe that. And so Luther says, the righteous shall live by faith. So halfway up, he stops going up that staircase, he comes down, and then later he writes this about his experience. There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your work. And that's why Paul says every other way of preaching a gospel where your own performance is included, may you be cursed for that because that is nullifying the gospel. There's no middle ground between grace and our confidence solely being on the work of Christ and our confidence being in our own work in spiritual performance. See, religion works with, I obey, therefore God accepts me. The gospel is the reverse of that. God accepts me. My performance is irrelevant because my performance or my faith is based on the work of Christ. God accepts me, therefore I can live a life of obedience to him. So where's your confidence? Is it in the grace of Christ? Or is it in your spiritual performance? That if you're not a Christian yet, and you think the way into the Christian life is, you know, I'm not there yet, I still have a lot of bad habits, I've done a lot of things, I'm just not the kind of person Yet, that's not the invitation of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is the righteous shall live by faith. Your your trust comes not in your own spiritual performance, but in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And if if you are a Christian, when you're spiritually failing, when your performance is terrible, are you just as likely to pray in that season as you are when you're crushing it spiritually? Do you pray just as much in your weakness and failure and sin as you do in your success and achievement? Because that's a key into whether or not you're relating to God by your performance or his grace. And I want to dig deeper into that. So hopefully you're getting a sense of what's happening in Galatia is, is people have turned away from relating to God based on the grace of Christ into their own spiritual performance, the rules we must keep for God to be loving towards us. But I want to press deeper into what that looks like, what the marks of a graceless life are. One of my early memories of church, it's probably like seven, eight, nine years old, coming out of church and there's a guy, his name's Jerry, he's outside our church and he was smoking a cigarette. And I had the thought in the moment as a, as a young child, Jerry's going to hell. At, at seven, eight, nine years old, I had three pieces of theology, or three things uh, very true that I knew true about my mind when it came to Jerry. One, he's a very nice man. He was always very nice to me. He's very kind. Two, Jerry smokes cigarettes. And three, people who smoke cigarettes go to hell. You laugh, it's actually not funny. That is worse righteousness. Salvation through tobacco freedom. 
That message probably would not play in North Carolina or Kentucky. <laughs> See, my, my church preached grace by words. And yet I caught a different message as a young child. True Christians never smoke. True Christians never listen to certain music, watch certain TV shows. They, they don't vote in particular ways. And the laws accumulated. True Christians do this. And I want to be clear, not all boundaries are bad, and there's lots of things with which we should disagree about. But this is why the book of Galatians exists. The likelihood that Christians who are supposed to relate to God by grace, over time begin to think, you know, that's probably not enough, so we need to create some rules so we can be sure, because surely God wouldn't relate to us by grace. So we need a law, we need some laws, we need some rules. And here's what the true Christians do. And we begin to add to it over time. And Paul just says, no. No. See, what's most interesting to me about Galatians, it's a book defining the gospel for Christians. We tend to think the gospel is for non-Christians. You become a Christian by believing the gospel. And that's true. But Galatians is written to define the gospel for Christians because they're turning away from a life of grace and creating a law structure by which they're demanding other Christians live by. And Paul says, no. You do that, may you be accursed. Strong language. Because as Martin Luther says, there's no middle ground here. Either your confidence before God is solely on his grace and what he's done for you, or you have to earn it. You have to earn it. You turn away from grace. But I believe the whole of the Christian life is an ever-deepening trust in the grace of God and leaving behind my spiritual performance as a grounds for my confidence. And so what I want to ask is just, what does is, what is someone who's turned away from grace begin to look like? Someone who creates this law structure. Because it's interesting, Paul says... There's not another gospel, but there are some that trouble you. Paul says you're spiritually troubled because of the message they're preaching. And I think people who turn away from grace and begin to build their lives on spiritually, spiritual performance become spiritually troubled. And it expresses itself in a variety of ways. And so what I want to do, there, there are two marks of a graceless life. And everything I'm about to, to speak to you comes from a book called Dynamics of the Spiritual Life by Richard Loveless. And he powerfully unpacks what it looks like when churches begin to turn away from a grace-filled life where our entire confidence is built on Christ's work on our behalf towards our spiritual performance being what provides for us. And Loveless says basically two things begin to happen to Christians who turn away from grace. There's two marks of a graceless life. The first is pride. Have you ever met a deeply religious person who was prideful? They were harsh in their speech. Hypercritical of other people who did not live up to their expectations. They rejected all kinds of people from different cultures because they didn't understand them. They argued secondary pieces of theology till other people were ground down into discouragement. Loveless says you turn away from grace and you end up with pride because grace 
is the most humbling gift in the world. To come before the creator of the universe and to say, I'm here and I have nothing for you and I can't earn this place. And to receive that is the most humbling experience in the world. And when you've experienced that and you live out of that as the center of your life, you can never look down on another human being. It's impossible. I mean, if the creator of the universe gave his own son to bring me into his kingdom, to call me his own child, how in the world do I look at a guy smoking a cigarette and think, well, he's out? Pride. That Loveless says, this is a subtle shift that happens in the Christian life. It's hard to live by grace. And over time, the first year maybe, the Christian life, yes, it's all grace, it's all grace. And then you begin to see some progress in your life, right? Some Some habits begin to be broken. You see some progress. And Loveless says, it's subtle, but it happens. We begin to move our confidence away from grace and towards our own spiritual performance. And this is how he describes people who are no longer sure that God accepts them apart from their own performance. He writes, this is a very important quote. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons much less secure than non-Christians because they have too much light to rest easily under the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. It says, if you're not relating by grace to God, you will, be, you will have a critical spirit towards other people. How much of church life from time to time is just criticizing our brothers and sisters in Christ? He moves on. They hate other cultural styles. I'm, I'm reading a, a book right now that's fascinating. It's called God's Forever Family. It's about the Jesus People movement where a bunch of hippies got converted. And it's fascinating, confusing, all the above. But one of the first converts was a guy named Ted Wise. He's a straight-up hippie. I mean, all the way. Long hair, hippie clothes, all of it. But he gets saved, and he ends up at a very conservative Baptist church where everyone wears suits on a Sunday morning. Hair cut very short. And they love and embrace him for a while, but over time, it's like, put a suit on, man. Like, come on. And so Ted, he's, he's actually beginning to reach some of the hippies in San Francisco. And so he asked the pastor, I want to start, I want to be a missionary to the hippies. Let's do something as a church together. So the pastor says, go and talk at the prayer night to our church about this. So he does. And... He lays out a lot of things, and he probably says some things I wouldn't say in a prayer meeting. It's pretty intense, but he was a hippie after all. And then he gets, he plays a Bob Dylan song for the church, and he's like, this is what youth culture is like. We need to reach them for Jesus. So the meeting's over, and everyone is just so angry at Ted, and they go to the pastor, and they're like, this guy, he doesn't wear a suit, he doesn't cut his hair, and he played Bob Dylan in our church. And here's what's interesting about all of that is... uh, is there a law that says Christians have to wear a suit to church? Is there a law that says uh, only certain hairstyles? This gets a little more confusing because 1 Corinthians does talk about this uh, a little bit. But that all men and all women must have the same haircut at church? 
And go to Acts 17. Paul quoted a non-Christian poet of his day in a sermon to hopefully bring non-Christians into the way of Jesus. Is it wrong to play poets that might represent the way of God even though they, they don't yet believe? All that's secondary. None of that's law. And yet, a movement of God that was beginning almost is disrupted over cultural preferences. And that's what Loveless says. If you're relating to God not by grace, you can't understand people of other cultures because you're, you're relating to God based on the confidence of your dress, your appearance, your theology, your rejection of cultural or secular music. But none of that's in the Bible. Loveless moves on. It's not just hatred towards other cultural styles. It's also a pharisaical righteousness where you judge others harshly, but then when others confront your sin, you reject it. You don't receive the critique, the hard word. This is powerful stuff. It might not be to you. This, 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 that paragraph changed my life. Because I, for so long, thought the point of the Christian life is to have an outward moral appearance, to look a certain way, to have a certain image. And what Lovell says is none of that, none of that is true growth, but it's a rejection of pride. It's a love of all people. It's a gracious kindness when you've encountered grace. A couple years ago, the uh, Barna Group did a research study where they asked non-Christians, what are the words you would use most to describe Christians, and here are the most common words, judgmental, bigoted, hypocritical, insincere, and uncaring. Now, whether we agree with that or not, that's one thing, but at the very least, non-Christians are telling us their experience of us is exactly what Loveless writes, is exactly what Loveless says is a graceless culture, a prideful culture. So that's the first mark of a spiritual prideful life is, or a a life that's not relating to God on grace but on works is pride. The second is self-despair, right? If you, if you have to have confidence before God based on your spiritual performance, you're either going to, going to reach your bar of, of, I did it, which is going to make you look down on other people. Or more likely, I think this is more common in the church, you're not going to reach your bar and you're not going to be convinced God loves you. That is, Paul says, there are some who trouble you. I don't know what's beneath that word, but I have a suspicion that when someone comes to you and says, here's the law, you better keep it or God's not going to love you. And if the gospel's true and we can't keep the law to earn our own salvation... Then if someone comes to you and says, here's the law, you better keep it for God to accept you, you're only going to live in self-despair. You're going to walk into church and say, he doesn't want to hear from me today. He knows what I said. He knows what I did. He knows my past week. There's no chance he will receive me. And Loveless goes on to say, basically, when you relate to God, not through grace, your whole life becomes ebbing and flowing between pride and self-despair, between judging others harshly And feeling like God doesn't want to hear from you because of your own brokenness. The law troubles you. You have conscience. You know you can't keep it. So what do we do with all this? Well, let me give you five things that you must do this week. A new law to, thank you. I was a little afraid some of you are like, oh good, tell me what I must do to be saved. No. We turn back to grace. 
we come back to grace, to the freedom of living in grace. That's why we called this series Live Free. The whole point of Galatians, as I said last week, is Galatians 5.1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't come back to where you relate to God based on your spiritual performance. So, what is the freedom of living of grace? Well, let me tell you a few things. One, when you relate to God by grace, you're free to confront your sin. You don't have to put out an image to other people to be, to be good enough before God. You've rejected that way of thinking. And so I love the way Loveless puts this. He says, uh, their understanding of sin, this is talking about people who still relate to God through their performance, not grace. Their understanding of sin focuses on behavioral externals, which they can eliminate from their lives by a little willpower, and ignores the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness, and hostility beneath the surface. I love that image. It's easy for me to appear to be a nice person to you. But then you you go beneath the surface and there's continent-sized issues of sin, like Africa-sized issues of sin in your life. Or I don't know if that's the biggest continent, but whatever the biggest, like there's huge issues of sin beneath the surface. And someone relating to God by grace is not not afraid to explore that territory. Because I know whatever is underneath there is not going to make God stop loving me. Right? Ultimately, the reason why we feel like we have to put out an image for people to receive us is because the question is, if you really know me, if you really know the extent of my sin and brokenness, will you still receive me? Will you still love me? And in the gospel, that question has been answered. Right? Verse 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. He knows the continents of sin beneath the surface for you. He's well acquainted of those things, and he gave himself for those things. So you can explore the deep, submerged elements of sin in your life without any fear that he will reject you because he gave himself for those sins. You're free to confront your sin. Second, I'm, I'm free to live in the authority of Jesus. Spiritual performance means I have to earn my freedom through my effort. What Galatians makes clear is Jesus gave himself for our sins and he's delivered us from the present evil age. So I now live in his victory. And whatever sin issues I've got in my life, I don't know where I'll be in 5, 10, 15 years. I know I'll be better than where I am today. And I know someday when he makes me brand new, I will be whole and complete. I live in his authority, not in my efforts. Three, I'm I'm able to live in a community of grace. That Paul, at the end of this section, he says, so what? what? Where am I seeking approval? Is it from other people or is it from God? And he makes clear, I'm seeking the approval from God. Well, the, the gospel is that our approval before God, our acceptance before God, is, it's been won through Jesus. I don't have to earn his approval anymore because I relate to him on the basis of Christ's work on my behalf. So I'm already approved of God, which means I don't have to live in the insecure place of you approving of me. I have the approval of God through his grace and kindness, which means I don't have to live in the insecure place of, of please like me, please approve of, of me. And that should lead to a very different type of community in the church than what anyone would experience in the world. And I love the way Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, this is, this is talking about how we Christians see one another within the community. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, I don't look at you and say, I know about the sin beneath the surface in your life, and I think that's just 
you're a terrible person. I can't believe you. No, I can't do that because I got my own. So I don't regard anyone according to the flesh because, and I love this line, uh, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Now we're walking new creations. Yes, we have sin, but we are walking new creations. And so we treat each other as new creations better than we deserve. We hold out hope for one another, for the work God is doing in our lives, which means no harshness, no judgment, no critical spirits, no hard words for fellow. Confront sin, yes, but we confront sin in light of there's a new creation happening in front of me. God's at work in that person's life. I'm hopeful for them. I believe in what God is doing in their life. I do not regard them anymore according to the flesh. I'm free to live in a community of grace. And then finally, I am free to come to my Father. If I don't have to relate to God based on my spiritual performance anymore, that means my relationship to the God of the universe is is a son to a father who always wants me to come home. It's a beautiful promise. And it's why Paul starts this letter by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does he say that to them because they are spiritually crushing it? No, in fact, he's about to say, I am astonished that you're leaving grace. And yet he starts the letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not crushing it spiritually, and yet they still have grace and peace from the Father. That's the whole of the gospel. None of us relate to God on the basis of our performance any longer. We have grace. We have peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. But that's hard to stay put in grace. It's hard to stay put in grace. And all of us, me included, you just begin to think, no way God wants to relate to me like this. Surely he needs something from me for him to love me. It's hard to stay in grace. A few years ago, when I was in Kansas City, I had someone invite me to go play golf at a, like a world-class course. I could never have afforded that. I could never have gotten to that course. And this course is, is so famous. John Elway has a plane. He just flies in. He plays the course for a day, and he flies back to Denver. Like, this is truly one of the best courses in the world, in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. I don't understand that, but just trust me on that. It's, it's an amazing place. And as a golfer, like, I love playing really nice courses. And so, so he, this guy invites me to go play this course. And the whole time I'm thinking, I can't believe I get to do this. But on the drive down, I start thinking, i, I got to justify this incredible generosity. I need to be a good conversation partner. I'm his pastor. He starts talking to me about some, some trouble he's having. I better give him good advice. Um, I better be funny. Right? Then when I get to the course, it's like I better not like throw my clubs in anger or anything. Not that I would ever do that, but you know, I better, better behave myself. When I'm eating lunch, I'm like, I hope I don't spill food all over my... I'm just think, I'm, so, I'm so conscious because the gift is absurd. I'm playing one of the best courses in the world. I would never be able to do this. And yet I couldn't. And he just kept saying to me, just have fun. I think you could say, I was like, relax, man. Like, it's okay. And I, I just sense that's God's posture towards his, his church. Like, yes, this, this really is what it is. I, I actually gave you my son 
I freed you from everything broken in your life, from this broken world. One day you're going to taste a new heavens and new earth, and, it, and it, it is actually all free. You don't owe me anything, so stop trying to pay me with your works because they're actually not that impressive to begin with. <laughs> but grace is hard to believe. So we build a new law. Surely if I do this, God will love me. And meanwhile, the father is saying, I've already given you my own son. What more could I give you? And frankly, what could you give to me that would ever equal the death, burial, resurrection of my son who gave himself for your sins? What performance could we give him that would equal that? God doesn't need anything from you. So go home to your father. He's waiting. Let's pray. Father, what good news of grace. That every word I speak now, I speak, and I know is received because Jesus became a child, entered this world, gave himself for our sins, went into a tomb, and came out three days later to announce victory for us prodigals to run home to our Father. So if there is anyone in this room who's never come home to the Father, we trust you're calling that person. Keep calling. For those of us who have come home, from time to time slip back into the role of elder brother who we've worked hard, we've done our part, we've kept the law, we've done everything you ask. God, free us from that slavery, uh, slavery life of pride and self-despair and help us come home to grace, which is the most freeing experience in the world. Father, lead us to grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.